There are nearly 300,000 University of Alberta alumni around the world. They are your neighbors, your community members, your colleagues. You'll find them in all manner of work, in all kinds of places. And when disaster strikes, you'll find them on the front lines. These are their stories. This is The Line. At first, a new ThinkHQ poll seems to place the economy ahead of health. 77% of Albertans are very concerned about the future of the economy, 71% deeply concerned about unemployment. Compare that to 58% who are very concerned about the spread and impact of the novel coronavirus. If you Google COVID-19 and the economy, and I don't encourage you to do this, the results you'll get are not pretty. What you'll see are dire headlines comparing this to the Great Depression, statistics showing disproportionate impact on women and minorities, market graphs that trend down, and unemployment graphs that skyrocket. It seems that unless you own stock in Zoom or Shopify, odds are you're not doing great. But the thing about the Great Depression is, we came out of it. And we'll come out of this too. It's just a matter of how and when. We don't know what that will look like, but we do know that the policies that get us there will be influenced by economists. A lot of economics, at least on, on the macro side, is trying to take an incredibly complex world and boil it down to a manageable number of indicators or data points or, or these sorts of things. And so there are some... That's the voice of Dr. Andrew Leach. He's an energy and environmental economist and is associate professor at the Alberta School of Business at the University of Alberta. I spoke with him on Friday, June 5th. Here, he's responding to my question about the role of economists right now and how they handle these types of situations. And so there are some data points or interactions that we might not have thought at all about in our modeling up until six months ago that now, you know, obviously the public health response and, and such things have, have taken on a new world. And, and you're seeing uh, just, you know, this week's crisis, a lot of introspection among economists about how badly we've done at integrating uh, questions of race and discrimination and, and such things, particularly in top flight economic research. In some ways, the biggest challenge for economists right now is to I don't know if take the back seat is, is the right way to think about it, but we can't become epidemiologists in a week. And there were far too many of our discipline trying to be amateur epidemiologists on the internet. And, and I think probably this week, there are a lot of us trying to be, uh, you know, trying to learn intersectionality and, and race and discrimination issues in a big hurry. And that just leads to bad policy and, and leads to bad recommendations. So I think one of the biggest challenges for economists the last you know, three to four months, at least with the pandemic, has been it's a massive economic crisis for which maybe economists don't have the most important things to say. Andrew's respect for other disciplines is reflected in his own multidisciplined education. His undergrad is in environmental science, and right now he's wrapping up a Master of Laws at the University of Alberta with a focus on constitutional law. What determines our ability to set policies? So you walk into an environmental econ class, people talk about, okay, what might the government do? An assignment I would give to my students might be, you know, what would you recommend to the Minister of Environment for Alberta's new climate policies? Uh, and the biggest constraint on that is going to be constitutional and legislative jurisdiction. And we almost don't talk about it at all in economics. And if we do talk about it, it's 
you know, the peril of economists is to read one thing and assume we know everything. And I think people have tended to do that with the Constitution and the law and, and think about what that means for, for climate policy. So for me, it was a really neat opportunity to take a year and learn that stuff in depth and change a little bit of focus. And uh, the law school was willing to, to accommodate me and, and to let me, and the students were phenomenal, right. To let me sort of drop into their classes and all of a sudden go from, I had a couple of my former students who were in the law school and, you know, I went from being the prof at the front of their room to one of the other people in their study group. And, and that was really cool as well. I had so many questions for Andrew about what's happening right now and what could happen. For starters, I wanted to know if there's been extra pressure to get things going again. At the time of this interview, Alberta was about to enter stage two of its economic relaunch, and I wanted to know if there was consensus among economists about how a reopening should go. <laughs> a lot of questions there. I, you know, I, I think the answer is yes and no to all of those questions. Uh, I think... When you think about the reopen, I have the same questions that you have, right? By any objective metric, we seem to still be in a worse situation today than we were when we closed things down. Um, and the second thing I think is to, is to remember that it wasn't just government policy that closed things down, right? It was people. It was, if, and if you look at a lot of the government policies, for example, on closing restaurants, uh, it, it was... The government policy that lagged people's responses, it wasn't the other way around, right? It was restaurant reservations were down and declining well before the government said you can't do it. People were canceling trips and canceling cruises and canceling travel and all of these sorts of things long before government said you can't travel. And well, long in pandemic time, so like days, but uh, but it, it was still a lead. And so, so I think the question now is as governments back away from the public health regulations, how do people respond? Do they respond with a surge of activity or do they respond fairly cautiously? Uh, and, you know, you asked another question about consensus among economists. I think you're seeing a really, or at least I'm seeing a really interesting give and take between, you know, different, I guess, where people put emphasis. So for me, uh, thinking about, who's affected by this recession, which industries, which uh, employees, and then some of the support structures that aren't there. So for example, you know, we, we in 2008, 2009, which everyone looks to, uh, it was fairly unlikely that if you lost your job, you also lost your childcare. Uh, but right now you have people who both are out of work and who don't have kids in school and who don't have childcare. And so can you look for a job? Can you take a new job if one is offered to you, if you've got a five-year-old or a six-year-old at home? Uh, you really can't. And in 2008-09, that wasn't, we didn't have that issue to the same degree, right? You didn't have a disconnect of, of childcare. You didn't have the situation with elder care that people are dealing with right now. So there's all kinds of different factors. And I think maybe that's where you're seeing a little bit of a cleave between kind of the, the stereotypical Bay Street economists looking just at jobs numbers and looking for stimulus and these sorts of things. And uh, people like, you know, I'd cite Tammy Shirley at Ottawa U or, uh, or sorry, at Laurier or Jen Robson at Carleton, um, thinking of, 
uh, childcare and women and work and participation in the workforce as something we haven't really seen in, in a lot of, but is really coming to the forefront right now. A big question a lot of us have, even as we reopen, is what customer enthusiasm will look like. I noted that big retailers like J. Crew have declared bankruptcy, and I assume that others must also be facing precarious situations. Yeah, and, and you know, a, an organization the size of J. Crew has a very different view of that world than, you know, I think about friends of mine who operate local independent retail businesses. Uh, you know, the, the ability to shift online is, is challenged. The ability to, uh, you know, staff your store, respond to the, the different public health guidelines, et cetera. Maybe your two or three employees don't have the same childcare that they had before. So all of these things are, are new and challenging. And, and I think, you know, where do economists come in? I think there's some who are are still coming in and fighting the last war in a sense. They're looking for the stimulus that we had in 08, 09. And this is a very different uh, situation than 08, 09. The shift online seems to have been key so far. And some companies that were already primarily online are thriving. In early May, the e-commerce company Shopify surged past RBC to become Canada's most valuable company. I asked Andrew if we'll see clear winners and losers coming out of this. Oh, for sure there, you know, for sure there are going to be winners. And and I think that's, uh, that's important not to lose sight of, but I, I, I do think the, you know, okay, Shopify is, is a really good example, but the people you want to be concerned about and the businesses you want to be concerned about today are the ones that have lost 90% or 95% of their earning potential. And Yes, there are going to be winners, but that's still a huge dislocation if you're looking at shifting activity from one sector to another. Andrew and I chatted a bit about the impact on local businesses, and he noted that paying rent is a challenge for small businesses, and many of the companies that collect that rent are also small businesses themselves. I asked what is, admittedly, probably a dumb question. Why can't we just freeze rent altogether? Well, I suppose you... you can until you account for the fact that there's still, you know, somebody's paying a mortgage, somebody's paying a, you know, rent, or sorry, utilities, property taxes, all of these sorts of things. And so if you try to pause everything, at some point, there's still a bill to be paid. So you're not actually pausing your giving some people a holiday at the expense of others. And so I think, you know, that the, there's a point to which you can defer or, or transfer any of these types of expenses, but, you know, the maintenance expense on a building doesn't go away because there's a pandemic. Um, the paying interest on the loan that you took out might go away, but it's only going to go away if somebody else is taking that on for you, right? If, if you think of even a large bank saying, we're going to give you a holiday on interest or we're going to let you defer your payments, somebody's paying for that. So either you're going to pay for it in the long term by paying interest on the carry or a shareholder is not taking a return. And it's, you know, again, you get into this, well, okay, shareholders are big and abstract until you realize that, no, that's our pension funds and it's our retirement income and it's our RSPs and it's, 
it's still people, right? And, and so you're, you're not making the cost go away. You're just changing the distribution of it a little bit. Speaking of paying for it, one of the ways people are paying for anything right now is through the federal government's Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. But is it working? Is it doing what it was intended to do? It's a great question. I don't think we know the answer yet, to be, to be perfectly frank. We know that we've seen unprecedented government dollars moving into people's pockets and that that's made it possible for people to not be completely left in the cold in, in this public health response. Uh, I don't think we know the long term, right? We don't know. Uh, and, you know, you can pick your reason for opposing it and say, well, we don't know how many of the dollars went into the hands of people who didn't need it. We don't know how much cheating there was in the system. Um, and, and we won't know that for a long time. But we also know that, you know, the think of the difference between like the last week of February versus the second week of March, right? And then the last week of February, the pandemic was an unknown, well, it was known, but it was kind of abstract and far away. And well, who knows what's going to happen. The second week of March, we were basically in hundred percent shutdown. And so from a policy perspective, uh, you have to take that into account. This wasn't something where we could sit back and say, well, let's take some time and plan out the perfect response. It was, oh my goodness, we have a mass of millions of people who all of a sudden are not receiving a paycheck. And millions, and a lot of those people who were in, you know, vulnerable, precarious positions to begin with, we've got people who are trying to, you know, find a way to feed their kids and, and deal with their kids and deal with their schools and, and all of these sorts of things, get back to the country. So from a policy perspective, it, it would just have been a hurricane. If the CERB is successful, could it transition into universal basic income after the pandemic? Or is that just not sustainable? You know, the challenge of UBI is in some ways the same as, as the one you just brought up. It's, you know, if we had a guaranteed minimum income, you know, to do it at a reasonable level, your starting point is you're probably doubling the size of government. So if you're gov doubling the size of government, you got to fund it from somewhere. And so is it taxes, debts, or other program cuts? Uh, those are sort of your three choices. And so I think different people would have different answers to that question. Uh, and then the other side with, with UBI is, is we often see it painted as, okay, a way to streamline some of the government program offerings, right? So you wouldn't need EI and student loans and CPP and OAS and all of these sorts of things. You just have this one program that gives everybody a minimum income. But a lot of the programs in that space are you know, they're designed to cushion people against large shocks. And if you say, okay, well, I'm going to give everybody a small payout every month, that doesn't help you cushion against large shocks. Uh, it doesn't help you if uh, you happen to be a high needs individual who relies on a very expensive government program. If the government turns around and says, okay, but it'll be fine because we're giving we're giving everybody the same amount every month and you sort of turn and say, but 
that means my program is getting cut by a factor of three. There's a degree to which people will look and say, you know, does this motivate the case for, for a UBI? And, and, and I don't think it does. I think it motivates the case for exactly what we're doing, which is um, government being there to provide insurance in a time of crisis. We hear a lot about how the pandemic could cause lasting change going forward. UBI was just one example I thought of, but I also wondered if it could permanently change the way we do work, or even if it could lead to something like a four-day work week. I think certainly the way that we work is is getting changed. I'm not sure. I'm I'm always suspicious of people who suddenly the new change circumstance that we've never experienced before is yet another justification for the thing they've been advocating for for five years or ten years. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm not sure that the argument for a four day work week has suddenly changed dramatically because of the pandemic, unless what you're talking about is spreading the same work over more people, uh, in which case it's not just a four-day work week, it's a four-day work week with a commensurate salary cut. And so I I think, you know, I I don't see the pandemic as having changed that or, or at least changed that in a way that we can know yet. Right. We don't know what what our, you know, I don't know what our world looks like three weeks from now or four weeks from now. The idea that we can sit here today and, you know, a week ago we could have had this conversation and we wouldn't wouldn't have talked at all about uh, race and the entire deconstruction of the U.S. economy over, um, you know, the idea that there'd be U.S. military in the streets of Washington, D.C. a week ago was was not something we were expecting. And now here we are. Because Andrew's research focus is on energy and environment, I wanted to ask him about the Green New Deal. We hear about it a lot. If the New Deal was the answer to the Great Depression, could a Green New Deal be the answer now? Um, you know, I, I think I'd start by saying we're really early, right? So the New Deal came quite a ways into the Great Depression, And so I think our focus right now should be on let's not do the things that put us into the Great Depression. So, you know, what were some of the I read last week or listened to an audiobook, John Kenneth Galbraith's Crash of 1929. And so he writes a lot about what pushed us into the Great Depression. And and a lot of what pushed us into the Great Depression was uh, irrational worries about debt. Um, it was government pulling money out of the economy when it needed to be putting money in. It was, um, you know, different things that, that we see today uh, almost repeating themselves. And so I think I would start with that, not start with the Green New Deal is, you know, remember that the economy is people and the more you put people into challenging situations, the harder it's going to be for them to rebound. And so the government's doing some of the things it should be doing right now, which is bailing out people. And and so I think that's a positive. Uh, You know, the Green New Deal, obviously, my interest is, yes, let's absolutely invest in environmental solutions. But I do think, you know, what was the Green New Deal? The the original uh, congressional document was like six pages or something like that for 
what would arguably be the largest economic stimulus package since the Great Depression. And I think, you know, we we want to be careful about simple snap our fingers solutions in the same way as we want to be careful about a pipeline is going to solve our problem, right? That, that you can't snap your fingers, build a pipeline and bring back the boom times in Alberta uh, any more than you can snap your fingers, build some solar panel, pan, put up some solar panels and wind turbines and, and, and solve Alberta's current uh, current issues. So, you know, beware of beware of magical solutions, whether they come from the green side or the brown side. We had a great chat with Andrew, and so much was left on the cutting room floor. Seriously, this episode could have been 40 minutes long. The last clip I'll leave you with is his answer to a question that Chloe had at the very end. Will the pandemic widen the gap between the haves and the have-nots? What we do see in both Canadian and U.S. data is the the dynamic that you talked about, that the people who are the most affected are the people who are the lower wage earners. Uh, they're the people who are arguably most vulnerable because it's the, you know, it's the service sector, it's the temporary employment, it's the seasonal employments, all of these sorts of things that, that are getting hit. Um and very different uh, dynamics, particularly in the first couple of months, uh, where you saw, um, you know, male versus female spreads on employment, on unemployment, on wage drops, et cetera, that are very different than what we saw, for example, in 2008, 2009. And so I think that's a huge concern. And, and you know, people, I, I cited Tammy and, and Jen Robson a second ago, I think Kevin Milligan at, at UBC as well, working on this extensively to say, you know, don't lose sight of the fact that at least in Canada, this isn't a manufacturing recession as much as it's a service side recession, right? It's, it's a very different distribution. And so that matters for, for our response. Um, I saw some numbers this morning in the U.S., uh, you know, it's, it's jobs day both here and there. So, you know, the U.S., uh, Black, Hispanic, um, et cetera, uh, labor force much more affected than white labor force. In Canada, I haven't seen the same breakdown, but my immediate sense would be that we have exactly that situation, that our um, you know, people who are in that vulnerable situation are are getting affected far worse than than people who are secure. The Line is a University of Alberta Alumni Association podcast. This episode was hosted by me, Matt Ray, and produced by me and Chloe Chalmers. Things happen fast in the pandemic, and we're trying to keep track by noting how these episodes function as snapshots in time. We recorded our interview with Andrew on Friday, June 5th, At the time, there had been 7,098 confirmed COVID-19 cases in Alberta. As I record this message on Tuesday, June 16th, that number is now 7,842.